welcome to the Trans-Imperial History Podcast. My name is David Mutafi Haller. Join us as we make sense of one of the most exciting fields in history today, Trans-Imperial History. What is Trans-Imperial History? How has it evolved? And how does it push the boundaries of scholarship about empire and colonialism? What does it mean to think trans-imperially? And what should you read if you're interested in trans-imperial history? In this podcast, my colleagues and I introduce you to some of the leading scholars working in the field of trans-imperial history today and tell us how they began asking new questions and revolutionized the field. They talk to us about the key challenges and insights of trans-imperial history today and about the future of history. Hello. Hello. And welcome, everyone, to the first episode of the Trans-Imperial History Podcast. With us today is Professor Cyrus Shayek, who is Professor of International History at the International History and Politics Department. And he convened in May last year the Modern Inter- and Trans-Imperial Histories Conference, a very unique opportunity for a lot of scholars from across the world working on imperial history to get together and to discuss their own research and how it interacts with other imperial spaces adjacent to or overlapping with their own research. And perhaps we could start with that, Cyrus. Why do you think these kind of conferences are necessary? And how does it contribute to the emerging field or subfield of trans and inter-imperial history? Thank you so much, David, for organizing this podcast and for having me. The first answer in the particular juncture we were in 2022, I think, was social. COVID had happened, still with us, but it had really sort of, you know, rampaged also through academia. And so people couldn't see each other in person for a long time. And I think one important reason for organizing this conference was indeed to bring people back together. Of course, this is not at all anything exceptional, but it was a good thing to do and people, I think, really enjoyed it and appreciated it. The more fundamental intellectual reason was to bring together, not entirely for the first time, but for the first time since COVID and for the first time in that volume we had, people who in different ways, looking at different topics, working on different areas of the world, though all modernists were thinking of ways in which people work across, live across, function across empires in the 19th and 20th century. There have been a bunch of conferences on this before, but all had been in the 2010s. All had been smaller and none had the geographical and the thematic reach that we had. I should note here, of course, that we were lucky to have the support of the Dubois Foundation, as well as quite large Swiss National Science Foundation grant, which together really allowed us to mount this operation, which you, of course, expertly organized and for which I'm still really thankful. So what was the underlying goal of the conference. It was, I think, to take stock. Number one, to take stock of a good decade of historical studies of trans-imperial relations, 
something that had started around 2010, give or take, at the very least as far as publications are concerned. Research had started a little bit earlier. And then also, secondly, not only to take stock, but also to think about possible future directions, right? Which is, of course, always, I think, something that particularly larger conferences should do. Not simply look invert and look back, but really look ahead. A number of publications are now being issued from this. Everything are still in the work. But yeah, I think these were, these were two main goals that we pursued. Let me ask you about the emergence of this field. When does the trans-imperial moment happen? You trace it to the early 2010s, but of course, preceding it is a large body of scholarship interested in colonialism and in empire. Maybe you could talk a little bit about when did things become trans-imperial implicitly and more importantly, when did they become so explicitly? That's a really crucial question. And I'm sure that my answer will be partial. And I'm also very much looking forward to, I mean, the next sort of few months and through ne the next year, uh, writing a chapter of a sort of a short introductory book I'm writing about trans-imperial history, precisely to look at these roots. I should perhaps start by saying that tracing roots and tracing to use a fancy word, genealogies, is never a neutral exercise. And I think it is really important to go out of one's comfort zone and to meaning out of one's, as it were, area of thematic and geographical knowledge to try to understand as broadly as possible what led to a particular field, what led to the emergence of a particular field. So this is just by way of preface, to now talk more concretely about the question of roots. L let me talk about two broad ways of looking at this, right? One way of looking at this would be to say that historians of the relationship between modern European empires and modern African and Asian empires in the 90s and 20th century, in effect though not by name, have exercised and studied trans-imperial relations for a very long time. They haven't called it that way, hence not by name, but they certainly have looked at it. Why have they done so? Because when you are a historian of a modern Asian or modern African empire, then you simply cannot come, you cannot get around the issue of the interaction of, as it were, your empire and whatever European empire there may be, one should then add the US empire and the Japanese empire in the 19th and the 20th century. That put differently, the, as it were, luxury that historians of specific individual European empires have had, namely to think that we can and should study them on their own is a luxury that historians of Asian and African empires haven't had, simply because these European empires plus the US plus Japan were way too much in 
the face of these African and Asian empires and, and very directly interacted with them. This meant that for the most part, people looking at those interactions were looking at inequalities, right? Because in the modern period, the very latest in empires and US and Japan became powerful enough to really be, yes, to really be much more influential than these other empires outside in Asia and in Africa. But they also have looked at the good number of other sort of interaction patterns. And particularly as of late, they have pointed out that inequalities were not static. They changed in nature. And they had all sorts of different unintended consequences, which are all issues that interest contemporary trans-imperial historians a great deal. To put it in a nutshell and to sum up, one route that we need to very strongly take into account when we think about where present-day trans-imperial history comes from and how to conceptualize what trans-imperial history is and can be is indeed that very rich body of scholarship on the interaction between modern European, US, Japanese empires on the one side and African and Asian empires on the other side. That's one sort of route. The second route is the one that people talk about much more often. And that's basically that route concerns changes in the way in which modern European empires, but also early modern empires, meaning 16th to 18th century, have been studied starting in the late 1980s. One particularly important change that really fully crystallized in the 1990s, perhaps most famously in the edited volume called Tensions of Empire, basically started to question whether we can and should study and try to understand the metropole and the colonial parts of empires in separation, which is how historians of empires, let's say before, studied them. So some would study the metropolitan population, let's say in Britain, while others will be historians of particular colonies, right? maybe one colony or multiple colonies. Same thing would be true for the Dutch Empire, for <clears throat> the French Empire, the Portuguese Empire, and so forth. And so in the 1990s, people started to push back against this, again, most importantly and most famously in this book, co-edited by Stoller and Cooper. And that was really an important first sort of change on the way to starting to think that we perhaps need to also understand um, what happens within one single empire by looking at what happens in the interrelationship between that empire and other empires. Now, there was a second sort of, or rather maybe we could say a third body of scholarship that of course was critical here, and that is the rise of global history, right? Because global history very consciously and very explicitly pushed back against, at that point in time, became called methodological nationalism. And in a certain sense, 
histories of empires, of single empires, are a cousin of methodological nationalism. We could maybe call them methodological empireism or something of that sort. Very ugly neology, but we could maybe use it. And of course, there are reasons why these two methodological isms are cousins, right? Which has something to do with the way in which nation state formation and empire state formation worked hand in hand in 19th and 20th century Europe. So there's a historical reason for this historiographical coupling of these two isms, as it were. So taking a page out of global history and its critique of methodological nationalism, more and more historians, particularly junior historians, of single empires started to say, hang on, we need to sort of understand empires not only in their own right, but as part of a larger as it were, cosmos of larger universe, like of empires. And that really happened in the first decade of the 2000s. And again, there are a couple of edited volumes that came out, including Epibolin, for instance, one that sort of started to think about empires as imperial formations, which is a much more loose way and a much more open way also towards the outside of the empire to understand them. And so that sort of was a turning point, or rather a pivot point. And after that pivot point, or from the pivot point onwards, then came publications in, first of all, in the 2000s, and then really just in the very early 2010s, mainly doctoral dissertations that were turned into books, became books that then really directly took on and fully embraced this particular sort of approach. Some called it inter-imperial, other call it trans-imperial. There's still a discussion going on which one one should use, whether to use both, if there are any differences between them, but that's sort of a separate discussion. I want to pick up perhaps on one thing that you mentioned there with regard to global histories zeroing in on the problems of methodological nationalism and what I think Ulrich Beck called container thinking in a way that each nation-state is its own container and that we should not be thinking that way. And like you said, what replaced it perhaps was different objects or different kinds of containers. But perhaps let me put this to you and I want to hear what you think about this, that the container habit of mind is still very much present in scholarship today. So we call it formations or we call it the linguistic spaces, the Persianate world, for instance, which is basically the same thing, only slightly better made up. What would you say to that? I would agree. I definitely would agree. I think there is a I don't know, we may call it the epistemological, but also methodological issue here. To study, to write any sort of history, you at some point need to decide what the boundaries of what you are looking at are, including time, space, actors, to just name three most very wide, crucial sort of categories. And no matter what you do, you will always create your own box. Because if you don't, you will end up not making any sense or not making any argument. Now, that 
not to make so, not to make any sense or not to make any argument or not to tell a story, but to maybe create a collage or to to do anything that is not, as it were, a classical historical approach is, of course, legitimate too. We can do that. I personally, I'm of the opinion that the conversation that a historian has should not only be with his own self, but should be with other people and that other people benefit from him or her arguing in the most lucid way possible what he actually believes, whatever that is. And I, I personally do think that to make a, as it were, coherent, explicit argument, and that would include being explicit about one's boundaries is part and parcel of this. Because otherwise you can't really have a conversation. So I think, yes, I do think that we can play around these terminologies, but even when we do so, we still need to, by sort of necessity, need to use them. I think this is something, of course, that one talks about a lot with one student. I think the question for me is not so much do we or do we not, or indeed can we or can we not use these categories, but rather are we conscious and explicit, conscious for ourselves and explicit towards our readers when we use those categories? What could we say, perhaps, to listeners of this podcast who might be junior scholars, graduate students, early career scholars who want to be part of the most kind of up-to-date thing and in a way are trapped in an academic world that might tell them that you need to be always on the cutting edge of things, always be the most relevant. And perhaps they're listening to this podcast because they think the trans-imperial history thing sounds new and fashionable. So perhaps... What I'm asking you is, first, is trans-imperial history a fad? And second, delving deeper into the moment academia finds itself at this moment, uh, is it a fad specifically born out and championed by tenured professors and wealthy institutions in the global north who have the resources and have the time, should a young scholar with no position and with, let's say, little money to travel and do multi-sited fieldwork, archives, visit archives in seven different countries, should they be wary of doing this kind of research? Do you see that this is happening in applications of students to graduate schools or to, to grants or to scholarships? Is this just a scare? Should they be concerned in terms of remaining relevant? I think you're asking a really pertinent question. You're asking it in a general way. Are there fads? How should one in oneself vis-a-vis them slash vis-a-vis growing trends? and developing fields, to put it more positively, in, in the field of history and in scholarly fields more generally. And what about trans-imperial history more specifically? So let me maybe still, while remaining within the realm of history, 
say two things. One is that to me, any successful text is one that finds a balance between two things, your own interest and an interest of a sufficiently large and invested audience. I'm not of the opinion that we as historians should just talk to ourselves, to ourselves, to our own persons, and preferably also not just to us as, as a body of scholars. I really do think that it's incumbent upon us to try to make what we think is fascinating, relevant, and interesting, fascinating even, to, to, to other people. Other historians, firstly, maybe even foremostly, but then also even to others. So this balance, what fascinates me? What do I believe in? And what can I contribute to, to others, I think, is one we should always seek. That also means, in exchange, that we shouldn't just chase the last fat. We should not, as it were, sell our soul to what we believe is the next best shiny thing, right? We should listen to what we really want to do and then find a way to do it that interests others. And there always is a way, I think, that interests others. That brings me to the second issue, which is that, sure, there are always certain topics that come up and other topics that become somewhat less important. But this being said, uh, these things are never absolute. So it's not the case that all of a sudden there are no more economic historians. There may be less, for instance, right? There may be less, but they're still there and they still do really important work and they still are hireable. They may, let's say, for instance, in the 1980s when the cultural sort of turn sort of became very strong and economic history, just to again use this example, was really on the back foot. It was important for them to find new ways of presenting to the world what they were doing. Right? And some did, and very successfully. But that also means that you can really have, I think, you, you can have a career while doing different things. Not everybody needs to do, definitely not everybody needs to do the same thing. I'm pretty strongly convinced of this. And I should maybe finish this first part of my answer by saying that absolutely also not everybody who, you know, has a PhD in history needs to become an academic historian. There are many extremely rewarding, fascinating professional choices that also PhDs in history have. And academia is, is not the only way to whatever, to success in heaven and self-fulfillment, etc., etc. So now let me turn to the more concrete part of your question, namely the, the trans-imperial part, right? And here I would say just a couple of things. I don't think, I don't think it is a fad for one thing because more and more people start to become interested in it, right? Now, okay, so maybe that's the very... Maybe that would be the very definition of a fad, but a fad to me is also something that may very quickly peter out. Let me then say secondly, that I don't think it will peter out for at the very least three reasons. One is that in a certain sense, like good historians of single empires, so also historians of trans-imperial history are interested in inequalities and hierarchies which are topics that everybody these days 
recognizes both for intellectual reasons and for political reasons are really central to, again, seriously study. So this is not simply something that is of interest to this or that historian, but it is something that really concerns a, a public at large, right? Of course, there are different types of hierarchies, different types of inequalities, but these are really, I think, inherent, inbuilt, central to the study of empire and to the study of the relationships between empires and between peoples of empires. And I would also add that this is something that to a degree, not absolutely, but to a degree tends to differentiate trans-imperial from global history. Global historians only as of late have started to become more interested in these things. Before they were, and still today many are, more interested in presumably more equal flows, relationships, circulations. And I think empires are inherently polities that are built on inequality. <laughs> That's how they function. And hence, thinking with and thinking through the issue of inequality comes quite naturally, not only to historians of single empires, but also to historians of the relationship between empires. The second reason why I think it's not a fad is that the current world geopolitical trend that we are seeing, and I don't think this is going to go away, it really takes us away from the unipolar moment of the 1990s, maybe even the early 2000s, where the United States was really very central, to a sort of a new, at the very least, more than bipolar, but multipolar sort of world, a world that is definitely not like the sort of the world of the classical modern imperial age, but the world nevertheless where you have multiple actors that are really quite influential. And I think in, in that sense, understanding the deeper roots of the relationship between these multiple really influential sort of actors, maybe we can call them empires, maybe not, today, but understanding these roots is something that I think is really is pertinent to our very moment now and to, I'm convinced, the sort of the next, at the very least few years, if not actually decades ahead. And the third and last issue I would like to highlight circles back to your question about who is actually, as it were, financially and time-wise, you know, organizationally equipped to do this. And yes, as always, the more money you have, the more time you have on your hands, the more you can do. That's very true. The more access you have also visa-wise, passport-wise, the easier it is for you to write particularly complex sorts of histories. But the fact of the matter is that historians living in particular African countries, to take one example, can in principle, without any large problem, use the archives at their own disposition to look at, for instance, ways in which colonial administrators, but also regular people as reflected upon in these sources and in a host of other sources, actually interrelated or interplayed with people from across all sorts of different borders. And I would even say that sort of history that then will be written a sort of history that hopefully also, for instance, can draw on all sorts of differently framed oral historical sources, perhaps archaeological historical sources, 
will form a tremendously crucial part of trans-imperial history. Some will call this a trans-colonial history, right? A good number of people have talked about it this way. Maybe we can subsume it under the word trans-imperial history. But at any rate, I don't really see this as a big sort of methodological problem. I'll leave it at this. Professor Cyrus Shayeg, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you very much for having me here. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generosity of the Pierre Dubois Foundation and the Swiss National Science Foundation. It has been edited by Michel Olguin Flugliker and David Mutsafi Haller. If you want to learn more about trans-imperial history, please follow the links in the description.